think first of what our great national policies are. And as liberals, be proud of those policies and be proud of what they have done for Australia. Welcome to the Water Cooler podcast from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater, Senior Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. In this particular series, we're attempting something big. We're trying to define the virtues that unite the Liberal Party in the 21st century. The True Believer series is a, a forum for free-ranging, intelligent discussion that we hope can promote a broader conversation about the ideas that bind us as a political movement and how they can solve today's policy challenges. But our starting point is the We Believe statement, issued to mark the 10th anniversary of the Liberal Party in 1954. In each episode, we'll examine one of the 17 We Believe statements to discover the abiding liberal virtues they contain. And we'll then ask the question, if a similar statement was to be written today, should the 1954 version be retained, revised or rejected? And each week we have a distinguished guest to help us with the intellectual heavy lifting, uh, which is why I'm recording this today in the Sydney office of our 28th Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott served as the leader of the Liberal Party and achieved the feat of taking his party into government, which is something only four Liberal leaders have done, Robert Menzies, Malcolm Fraser and John Howard and Tony Abbott. He left Parliament in 2019 and now performs, I think, a very important role as a thought leader and mentor to the Liberal movement. Tony, welcome. Thank you, Nick. Wonderful to be with you and our listeners. Now, the mission that we've taken up in this podcast to find a set of words that actually mean something, but that everybody in the Liberal Party can say amen to, um, is this mission impossible? Look, it's, uh, it's a difficult challenge you've set yourself, but... It is an important one, and each generation of Liberals has to grapple with it. And different Liberal leaders over the years have come up with different formulae. Um, But I think somewhere at the essence of Australian Liberalism is a preference for freedom. On the one hand, uh, a deep pride in our country. On the other hand, but that pragmatic sense of wanting to do what we know in the marrow of our bones will work. Uh, And this is why I think the challenge of a liberal conservative political party in a successful society like ours is to build on our strengths. Uh, Not to reinvent the wheel, uh, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but uh, to consider the specific difficulties of the day and ask ourselves how can our traditions, our virtues, our instincts make them better. Just just to reassure me we're not completely going up the garden path on this one. In your experience as, le- as leader, parliamentary leader, there must have been many occasions on which you had to try and bring a divided party room together on a point and you had of course a number of difficult challenges on that, uh, climate change, energy policy, um, same-sex marriage. Yeah. To, to what extent are you able as a leader actually to go back to first principles and appeal to our united position on first principles 
rather than have to engage in sort of rather messy transactional politics? Well, you've got to start off knowing your own mind, Nick. And I think part of the problem with so many contemporary centre-right leaders is that they don't appear to know their own minds. They appear to take uh, counsel from focus groups and opinion polls. Um, Instead of asking themselves what's right, they ask themselves um, what will be popular. Now, in the end, I suppose we've all got to win elections and uh, that requires a degree of popularity. But I think that the public are looking for leadership, not followership. Uh, They respect people who know what they stand for and then do their best to put it into practice. Now, to take a couple of the thorny examples that you raised a moment ago, uh, this this whole issue of climate change. Well, uh, you might remember I became the leader at the end of 2009 in a very divided party room by one vote. One vote. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who was the opposition leader, uh, had... uh, tried to get us to support Labor's emissions trading scheme. Um, We'd had a very rugged party room uh, where clearly uh, the majority were against uh, Kevin Rudd's emissions trading scheme. Malcolm, for his own reasons, had just declared at the end of the party room that clearly we were in favour of supporting the emissions trading scheme. The thing broke up in uproar. Uh, There was, if you like, a dry run challenge by Kevin Andrews the following week. Uh, There were resignations from the shadow cabinet. Uh, I resigned, Nick Minchin resigned, various other people resigned. Uh, And then, of course, uh, Malcolm decided uh, that he would declare the position vacant. Initially, he wasn't going to run again. uh, So it looked like it was just going to be uh, a Joe Hockey coronation. But... uh, First, Joe decided that he didn't actually know where he stood on this issue. Malcolm decided that he was going to run after all. I thought, well, someone's got to run who's against this emissions trading scheme, a great big new tax and everything. Uh, So I did and, and, and eventually won by a single vote. But I'll tell you what I did afterwards. I did something that in my 25 years in the party room had never previously happened. I I had a formal vote on a policy issue. Uh, What normally happens is that um, the leader listens to the discussion and discerns uh, a position. Uh, Very rarely, as in the case with Malcolm just a week or so before this, uh, the discerned position had been so at odds with reality that there was an uproar and ultimately a revolt. But in this case... Um, I thought, given the contention, uh, there had to be a vote. Uh, And this was uh, a thought that had been put to me by the wonderful Kevin Andrews. So we had a formal vote. Would we or would we not support Labor's emissions trading scheme? From memory, uh, and we'd just changed the leader, don't forget, from memory the vote came back something like uh, uh, 70-something to 20-something to oppose it. And I said, well, clearly, we are resolved on opposing this. And the fact that we'd had a vote, I think, lent a moral authority to our position. So having won by one vote, having overwhelmingly won the policy position with a subsequent vote, 
I then went out into the uh, lion's den of a press conference and said, look, uh, our job is not to make weak compromises with a bad government. Our job is to be a clear alternative and we are going to oppose Labor's great big new tax on everything. And that was my position um, from that day uh, to the end of my leadership. I was definitely opposed uh, to Labor's new taxes. I was particularly opposed to uh, socialism masquerading as environmentalism. I was particularly opposed uh, to anything that was going to damage our cost of living, to drive industries offshore, to cost jobs. And that, I regret to say, is what so much of climate policy has been about uh, these last two decades, really, and it's still the case. Um, We are still fighting the climate wars. And when it's a moral issue about emissions reduction, uh, the Liberal Party struggles. But when it's an economic issue uh, about saving jobs and protecting people's standard of living, the Liberal Party thrives. Indeed, it normally triumphs. In three elections, uh, climate has been a big issue between the parties as opposed to something that they're more or less agreeing on. 2010, 2013 and 2019. And in all of those elections, uh, the party that's had the more realist uh, as opposed to alarmist position on climate has won and, and done well. Okay, well, to the, to the business of today and, uh, and this particular part of the We Believe statement, um, it's the hardest one for me, at least, Tony, in getting my head around this and understanding it, which is why I'm so pleased you're here. It comes in three parts, but let's, let's read it. We believe that the supreme function of government is to ins- assist in the development of personality, that today's dogma may turn out to be tomorrow's error, and that in consequence, the interests of all legitimate minorities must be protected. So it's that first part, I think, that I struggle with. We believe that the supreme function of government is to assist in the development of personality. What do you make of that? Well, I think that the supreme function of government is to try to ensure that citizens are enabled to flourish in their own way. And I don't think that's inconsistent with uh, the Menzies' We Believe statement. Um, I can remember uh, back in the day uh, wrestling with what the first Bush called the vision thing, Remember that, Nick, the vision thing? Uh, he, had, he had trouble with the vision thing. Uh, and so many leaders have been asked over the years for their vision for their country. Um, on the couple of occasions that I was asked that or a similar question, I said, look, my vision uh, is not to impose my will on the country although obviously I've got opinions about particular issues and policies on particular issues that I want to take forward. But essentially, my vision for Australia is a country where each individual can realise his or her vision, where communities um, collectively might be able to realise a vision with which the individual visions of people can can cohere. So, so I think that's what Menzies driving at, that um, government is there 
to help individuals to be their best selves. Uh, and government is there over time to help the country to be its best self. I think that's what he's driving at. Um, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable statement. Government is not a value-neutral business, for instance. Uh, this idea that government is just there to hold the ring, uh, to be the umpire, uh, while the different forces in Australia slug it out and, and, and just to declare a winner. No, no. Um, I think the job of government, yes, uh, is to intelligently manage the affairs of the day, but it is also uh, to nudge the place in a better direction. Uh, and that better direction will obviously be determined by the instincts, values and virtues of the relevant government and the relevant political party. I might take issue with you on the word nudge, of course, which recently has become a bit controversial, uh, become a controversial word. And I think uh, particularly during COVID, we saw how the government was trying to nudge us with a, with a sort of jackboot. Well, that was more a sledgehammer yeah. than a nudge. I mean, But isn't it, the essence of this, what you, you, I think you got to uh, in, in what you just said, and that is that, as Menzies often said, you know, the job of government was to create an environment or the circumstances in which individuals could thrive. And unlike Labour, which always talks about we create jobs, I don't think we ever no. imagine we can create jobs. No, no, government doesn't create any jobs, certainly doesn't create productive jobs. It might create regulatory and administrative jobs, and uh, occasionally it will create uh, uh, jobs that are absolutely necessary for the safety of the nation. But in terms of economically productive jobs, government doesn't do any of that. Um, government is, it, it, can, it can create the environment should create the environment, strive to create the environment in which individuals and businesses can create jobs. And, and um, this is one of the big differences between the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. Um, uh, we think that private citizens and businesses create wealth. Um, they don't really seem to be that interested in wealth. They assume wealth uh, and, and then um, want to redistrib redistribute, redistribute it and um, occasionally they think that government can somehow summon it out of thin air, which is nonsense. So to the extent that governments can create or develop personality, as this statement says, I think we've identified they can do it in a positive way by, by allowing room for people to flourish and thrive and to set up businesses and to get their kids to school and all that stuff. I think there's also a negative uh, influence that government can have, government policy can have on individuals. The one I'm thinking of particularly is in welfare policy that we, we've seen, haven't we, but, uh, notably in, but not exclusively in the field of uh, indigenous communities, that too much welfare, intergenerational welfare, can actually take the spirit, suck the spirit out of people so they and, and, and rob them of their dignity. Completely correct. Completely correct. Uh, as you might remember, Nick, I've spent quite a bit of time over the years uh, working with Indigenous people and considering Indigenous policy. And it was the uh, Indigenous elders who first coined the phrase sit-down money uh, to describe the welfare that started seeping into their communities in the 1970s. And uh, it was later on Noel Pearson... Uh, with whom I have a few disagreements at the moment, but uh, 
who on this issue has been absolutely sound and very, very courageous, he said, uh, welfare is the poison that's killing our communities. Um, because uh, if you give people sit-down money, they will indeed sit down, and uh, uh, that will, over time, uh, produce a very, very dysfunctional community. A community that does not take responsibility for its own well-being is a community in desperate, desperate decline and crisis. And uh, this is one of the reasons why the Howard government was so strong on work for the dole. This was one of my big things as uh, employment minister in the Howard government, to try to end the something-for-nothing mindset uh, and to say to everyone who was work-capable, reasonably work-capable, you will work, preferably for a wage, but if not, for the dole. So I just think that's, uh, that's incredibly important, that government does not sap the spirit of its citizens by making access to welfare uh, too easy. Um, welfare, as John Hewson said, uh, uh, should be a trampoline, if you like, and not a hammock. And welfare reform was something that you took on in, in your government, um, particularly in, in relation to the disability pension scheme, which was essentially a sort of long-term it was sort of welfare forever, really, if you got into that scheme and, and you, you started the process that managed to reverse that a bit. I suspect, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, it might have gone back. I, I suspect you're right. Now, what, what we did, Nick, was uh, um, at the time, particularly for older male unemployed people, the soft option was to graduate from unemployment benefits to the disability pension and... Uh, there are very few 50-year-old blokes who can't go to their GP and get a certificate saying they've got a bad back or they've got chronic depression uh, or they've got, uh, you know, hard-to-manage diabetes or something like that. And on the strength of their doctor's say-so, they were getting on to the disability pension. And we know that less than 10% back then uh, ever left the disability pension other than via death or going on to the old age pension. Uh, so once you went on to the disability pension, you were basically there until you turned 65 and went on to the age pension. So we said, in my time as PM, no, no, um, you can't just get onto the DSP via your own doctor. You had to go through a government doctor. And obviously the government doctor uh, was a lot, uh, well, he wasn't conflicted the way your own doctor is when you go in and say, look, doctor, I need a certificate to say that I've got a bad back and I can't work full-time anymore. Menzies often um, talked about personality and, and character. He used that word a lot. And, and encouraging a civilised community, words I think that we'd find wouldn't really fit into our, our uh, soundbite environment of today. But, but Nick, it's only people who can take civilization for granted who don't have to worry about it. And I don't think anyone on the streets of Alice Springs uh, at night in recent times uh, would take for granted the sort of things that most Australians do take for granted, namely the ability to go peaceably about your business without molestation, uh, without anxiety about assault and so on. And the trouble when we don't 
from time to time remind ourselves of these more fundamental virtues is that we can so easily slip into a kind of dystopian dysfunction as we as we've seen in big chunks in Alice Springs and some other remote places recently. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Let me read you a quote from Menzies. This one comes from 1961. He's talking to the Launceston Church Grammar School. The guarantee of liberty and the guarantee of character is to have true individual citizens who think for themselves, who have their minds developed, who have put themselves in the way of learning more and more right through their lives and are therefore able to speak their minds and resist any petty aspiring dictator in whatever field who may come along to them. That's pretty... uh, strong statement but you wish we had more people that were able to resist petty aspiring dictators in recent years particularly. Uh, uh, Completely correct Nick but isn't it interesting that uh, Sir Robert Menzies I think he was just plain old Mr Menzies then but isn't it interesting that the then Prime Minister was prepared to go along to the Launceston Grammar School um, prize giving or whatever it was uh, speech night and speak uh, as a moral leader. Uh, he wasn't coming in to say, well, this is the government's policy on education and we're now spending an extra $10,000 per student on your school. Or look at the sports stadium that we built uh, for the school or the covered learning area or whatever it is. He came in there to say, look, uh, education has a fundamentally moral purpose. Uh, it is designed to produce people of strong character, of deep curiosity, uh, of good citizenship. That's what it's all about. And yes, uh, that won't happen if you don't also get a good grounding um, in uh, the classics of our culture, um, the the Western canon, the ability to count, um, some knowledge of science and so on. But, but, But he was there with an essentially moral message and I just think that we forget that at our peril. Well, I think that comes to something we've noticed with with these 17, we believe, statements. There's things that are missing, right? So there's nothing explicitly about the Western canon or, um, you know, a a truly uh, character-building education or anything like that explicitly. But I guess that's because it would have been pretty much taken for granted in 1953. Well, that's right. I I think so much was... uh it didn't need to be made explicit because it was implicit. Um, I mean, it was just assumed back in 1954 when this was issued that uh, Western civilization was uh, uh, mankind's greatest achievement 
so far that the English-speaking version of it was the best form of Western civilization, and that Australia, while a distinctive part of English-speaking civilization, was making a wonderful contribution to it. Um, none of those things would be taken for granted today. No, I mean, they probably never even spoke about the Western canon as such. They wouldn't have had any idea there could be any other canon that could replace it. Uh, exactly. And, and uh, while <laughs> we have to be conscious of our faults, and one of the great strengths of Western uh, civilization is uh, this restless searching for ever further perfection. We're never content with what is. We're always trying to do better and go further. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, uh, I think that we should be very happy and satisfied uh, that uh, it, it, is, it is one of our great strengths that we are prepared to recognise that we are not wholly strong and that we can still do better. Let's go back to the, the statement which is on the table today. We believe that the supreme function of government is to assist in the development of personality. I think we've, 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 got, a, we've got a handle on that now. Uh, the second part, that today's dogma may turn out to be tomorrow's error. I expect uh, you're going to be very comfortable with this statement and, and, and would see no reason to amend it if we were doing this again. No, no, I think that's a very wise observation. Uh, and, uh, and, and as, as John Howard uh, once said, a conservative is someone who doesn't believe that he is morally superior to his grandfather. And uh, Menzies' statement is, if you like, a, uh, I suppose a different version uh, of that observation of Howard's. Today's dogma may turn out to be tomorrow's error. None of us have a monopoly of wisdom and knowledge. And uh, our truth is important, but um, there's a sense in which uh, uh, very few things are final outside of scientific and mathematical proofs. Uh, very few things are final, and uh, we should approach all of these things in a spirit of humility. So often things can be seem to be absolutely settled, and if you don't agree with the consensus view... Mm then you're, you're off there with the fairies at the bottom of the garden. Absolutely. Look, we, I'll, I'll give you an, an easy example yeah. to deal with, and that was the millennial bug. Remember, the millennium bug, which mm -hmm. was supposed to... Y2K or whatever The Y2K called. bug yeah. was supposed to throw all our computers mm -hmm. haywire on the mm -hmm. 1st of January uh, 2000, and planes were going to crash out the sky, and governments invested a lot of money, businesses invested huge amounts of money. I suspect in the end it was a scam by IBM to sell more computers, <laughs> but... It didn't happen, and, no. and what everybody one day had thought was pretty much fact, the next day proved to be not, and we just moved on. But the, the more contentious example, which you might want to consider, is some of the dogma we took on during COVID, the idea that we had to wear masks, that children should be banned from playgrounds because they were, they were, they were little you know, carriers of death. You know, all this turned out to be nonsense about the whole idea of lockdown I think is probably now been pretty much shown to be a, a nonsense, and yet we were locked in that, weren't we? And 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 indeed, uh, uh, statements which we now think are much more likely to be true than false, such as uh, uh, the virus uh, probably originated in a Chinese government uh, lab, um, 
such as, for instance, that uh, um, COVID is no more dangerous than the flu uh, for young people. I mean, these were statements that back in 2020 were regarded as uh, um, uh, absolutely heretical misinformation or disinformation. But now, with the wisdom of hindsight, we would say, well, actually, they were pretty much right. So this is why we have to be very careful about, uh, uh, about cancelling uh, people and views. This is why uh, free speech is invariably uh, better than well-intentioned censorship, because even if the intentions are good, and they aren't always good uh, on the censors' part, even if the intentions are good, um, the knowledge is imperfect. Yeah. Well, John, John Stuart Mill said, all silencing of discussion is an, is an all silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you say well, we're not going to hear that point of view, so often we do now. I mean, we're right; things are not allowed to be said or argued on, particularly on a national broadcaster. I, I'm, I mean, you know, we are, we are routinely told by the government uh, in the context of the current debate over the voice that anyone who says that uh, um, all this might end up in the high court uh, or that uh, the voice might end up uh, recommending the abolition of Australia Day. That's all supposed to be misinformation. Well, um, this is a way of shutting down um, perfectly reasonable objective, uh, objections based on fact uh, to this giant leap into the constitutional dark. And if we come right up to date with this extraordinarily troubling proposal to give ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, the ability to say what is true and false on the internet and, and to order that the, anything they consider to be false is taken down, that leads into very dangerous territory. You've got a, a government agency that's going to be the cop on the beat and the chief prosecutor and the judge and jury. Some faceless bureaucrat will make a decision about what is true and what is false and based on that will effectively instruct big tech uh, to uh, to take stuff down or uh, to uh, cancel a whole category of uh, of opinion and uh, or, or assertion and look this is uh, this really is big brother stuff and I can't believe uh, that people well versed in the Western liberal tradition would even come up with this uh, let alone then seriously attempt to put it into practice, but right now we've got an exposure draft of this draconian legislation. Uh, people have got, I think, uh, a month to get their submissions in, um, but we know how these things work. Uh, the government has declared that uh, it'll have legislation in the parliament by the end of the year, uh, and given the fact that the government has a, effectively a majority in both houses of par- parliament, it's certainly got a, a left-wing majority in the Senate, uh, via the Greens and the populist independents, um, almost certainly we are going to be saddled with this. The challenge, of course, for our party, the Liberal Party, is uh, is is not to beat around the bush, but to say, look, uh, uh, if elected, we will reverse this. Which, as you know for experience, is a very hard job. Well, look, uh, one of the things that I had trouble with was 18C, um, um, which was which was uh, prohibiting uh, speech which offends, insults, humiliates, and intimidates. And of course, this was a measure put in by the Keating government, uh, 
on the grounds that, well, people shouldn't go around insulting people on the ground of, grounds of race. Um, it, it, it was opposed at the time uh, by the coalition opposition, um, but much as we love and revere uh, the Howard government and all associated with it, uh, may his name be praised, nothing was done about it. And of course, nothing bad was done with it uh, over that time. But of course, under the Rudd-Gillard government, we saw, first of all, Andrew Bolt prosecuted. Uh, then we saw, uh, um, uh, later, we saw the, the, the persecution of, 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 of Bill Leake uh, and those Queensland students. Uh, now, I, I tried to amend this damn thing. Uh, but I'm afraid the amendment proposed by the then Attorney General was incredibly clunky, and and um, then there were threats of floor crossing. Um, we didn't have a majority for it in the Senate. Um, all of the Liberal premiers, bar one, came out against it. Um, I took it off the table, um, and then suffered a, a, a storm from the other side. I think. The IPA, of which I'm now a senior fellow, took out a full-page ad denouncing me, um, having been silent <laughs> while the controversy was ra 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 raging. So the lesson in all this, Nick, is be very careful about doing anything because once it's there, it's, hard, it's very hard to reverse. That, that's right. And yet, to go back to Howard in opposition, um, you could see why at the time, the year out from an election, the, it obviously wasn't something that was front of mind for the general population. They were more worried about other excesses by the Keating government. That the, the, you could see how you'd say, well, let's not fight on that hill. Let's put. But we can't afford to do that. And right now, with the we've got the voice, we've got the economy Cor tanking. Cor correct. We can't miss this one. Correct. Correct. I mean, look, you know, I, I absolutely get that, Nick. Uh, you can't fight on everything. Um, and and there are some sleeping dogs that are probably best let let lie, but but it should be a fundamental principle of government. Uh, first, do no harm, and be conscious of the fact that one of the most important um, characteristics of life is the law of unintended consequences. Uh, you do something uh, with a, a noble and benign intention. But it turns out to have a whole lot of unintended consequences, which are not benign at all. Um, the renewable energy target, for instance, uh, again put in place by the Howard government. Uh, I think at that point it was two percent, and it seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Unfortunately, it was then weaponised um, uh, by the Rudd-Gillard government. Um, I was able to wind it back a bit but I wasn't able to abolish it as I wanted to. Um, and, and that's really, uh, as much as anything, behind the energy price disaster because it started this insane rush uh, to energy, which is weather-dependent and therefore only available 30% of the time when we need energy 100% of the time. Before we leave that ACMA issue, we know how they how they do these things now, right? If you want to do something really liberal, draconian, authoritarian, you first create some crisis, some fear over something that only the government can address. And, and I, the language of ACMA over this, I mean, 
it would be nice, wouldn't it, Tony, if, if, if everything we read on the internet was correct and if everybody who posted something on the internet was of, of good heart. But of course, that's never going to happen on this planet. But do we really think that we're facing an infodemic of fake news, which is what ACMA says? They say that the propagation of these falsehoods and conspiracies undermine public health efforts, cause harms to individual businesses and democratic institutions, and in some cases incites individuals to carry out acts of violence. Extraordinary, wasn't it? Extraordinarily alarmist language. Um and used to justify extraordinarily draconian recommendations, which uh, the former government uh, uh, should have immediately kiboshed but uh, failed to do so, uh, and now have been embraced with alacrity by uh, by the current government. So look, it's 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 a real problem, and to the extent that there is a deep state in this country, it's not the security agencies, it's that public service machine, uh, a kind of a green left public service machine, um, which just goes on its merry way, knowing that ministers change and governments change. Um, A lot of ministers won't have the uh, strength of character and the intellectual confidence to resist. Um, uh, And even when they do, you can outlast them. This is why uh, it's so important uh, that we get more people of character, courage and conviction into the parliament if we are going to maintain uh, the sort of values upon which our society has long been based but which are now under assault everywhere. Just to go back to that Menzies statement, today's dogma may turn out to be tomorrow's error. Um, Turn that on its head and we see something related happening all the time the, the today's fruitcake nonsense idea which seeps out of the university becomes tomorrow's dogma uh-huh. I mean uh, we've seen many examples I don't think we have to go into them but but it once again it requires the same thing doesn't it people of courage to stand up and say exactly no. right exactly right look uh, um, one of the many projects that <laughs> I have floating around in my head uh, is to write uh, my book on peak insanity and uh, you're assuming we've reached it, 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 well, it let's, a, hope, let's hope we can't let's hope we're we're, we're over the hump in some respects but i mean you know whether it's the climate cult uh the virus hysteria uh, the gender fluidity push the magic pudding economics worst of all the cultural self-loathing um, of societies which in fact have never been less racist, never been less unfair, never been um, more generous and sympathetic towards minorities. Uh, I, I mean, all, all this, it, it, it defies reality, uh, and yet it's become entrenched in such vast swathes of our society, it's become entrenched in so many people's thinking. The, the last part of this statement, um that the interests of all legitimate minorities be protected. How do we interpret that? What do we think of that? What are we trying to get? What was Menzies and the people around him trying to say when they say we need to protect the interests of all legitimate minorities? Well, I, I don't think he was saying that you should look after pedophiles or anything like that. I think what he was saying They'd was... They'd be an illegitimate minority. Yes, yes. What he was saying was that, uh, um, you know, migrants, for instance... Uh, um, 
people of minority religions, for instance, um, um, you know, people who um, have a reasonable interest in philately or something like that, uh, shouldn't have their reasonable interests, their natural rights and responsibilities arbitrarily interfered with. I think that's what he was saying, and I think that I think that again, it's a it's a it's a liberal and humane statement uh, from the founder of what has mostly been a liberal and humane political movement. I guess the challenge here, if we were to look at this today would be to separate this idea of protecting minorities from the identity politics uh, philosophy which has now come to dominate well, what, what, uh, this this phrase I, I think assumes takes for granted uh, that there is a mainstream um, uh, that there is a majority um, it, it 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 doesn't uh, just say that we as a country we're a collection of minorities uh, it, it it assumes that there is if you like a, um, a core culture um, a, an essential purpose uh, an overall common interest to which we're all working yeah it's very different from the diversity and inclusion mm. doctrine of today isn't it which Correct. is about um, actually about attacking you know, the dominant or what they see as the dominant majority and, and changing the whole of the society. Though. Correct. I mean, that this whole I mean, diversity and inclusion thing is, is fundamentally subversive, but this one, the interests of all legitimate minorities must be protected, I think, is a, is a, is a perfectly reasonable expression of what should be a feature of any decent and civilised society. And underpinning this, although it doesn't explicitly say so, is the notion that you know whatever characteristics you have that make you a minority, or you know, ex-pom or whatever it happens to be, the first first and foremost, you are an Australian citizen, and you share equal rights of citizenship. To use John Howard's phrase, um, uh, what we have in common is more important than anything that might divide us. So, we we should just touch on the the voice to Parliament before we leave in this context. Uh, yes, Menzies uh, and, and his, his ministers, notably ha Harold Holt, uh, uh, Paul Hasluck, had very enlightened um, policies, I think, towards Indigenous people, uh, which assumed that, that they would, you know, that they were just as capable, just as worthy as anybody else, and, and that they would, there was a place for them in mainstream society, if you like, but that wouldn't necessarily discount their Aboriginal identity. That, that, that was still going to be part of them. We've gone a long way beyond that with the voice, haven't we? Well, look, um, I, I think there are three fundamental problems with the voice. The first, it entrenches race in the Constitution. The second, it reinforces the separatism, which I believe is at the heart of Indigenous disadvantage. And third, it gums up government even more than we already are. So, so look, it's it's a it's a dreadfully illiberal idea. I can't understand how any person who thinks of himself or herself as a liberal would entertain it for a second. Um, I, I mean, obviously, I I respect uh, people like my friend Julian Lisa. Uh, I can only assume that Julian thinks that uh, 
even a bad voice is better than no voice at all because he certainly explained in chapter and verse why the current voice is a bad voice. Um, but I just think that uh, the whole concept of any one group having a special voice of its own over and above the voice that all of us have to the national parliament, have equally to the national parliament, I, I just think it's wrong, wrong, wrong in principle. And as I say, it is a fundamentally illiberal move. Um, and that's why I'm really pleased that uh, Peter Dutton is now so strongly against it and the wonderful Jacinta Price is leading the campaign. Okay, the final question which I foreshadowed at the start. If we were to look at rewriting this for the 21st century, uh, well, number one, do we have to rewrite it or, or can we retain the original words? Do, number two, do we have to revise it in some way? Or three, shall we reject it? What well, I think we should properly understand it. Uh, and as I said, uh, uh, this statement that the supreme task of government is to assist in the development of personality, um, it's probably not a phrase that uh, you or I would use, but nevertheless, I think properly understood, it is not just reasonable but right. Um, government should be conscious of doing what it can to enable individuals to be their best selves and over time to ensure that the country as a whole is its best self. I'm perfectly happy with that. Good. Thank you, Tony, for joining us. Uh, thank you for this, your thoughts on this. And um, it would be great to welcome you back to talk about these topics again. Thank you, Nick. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater and thank you for listening.